if you would open your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 4. Book of Esther, chapter 4. Last Sunday, I ended the sermon with the story of Esther, who in the face of the extermination of the Jewish people, is told by Mordecai, who had raised her since she was orphaned. He tells her, and who knows, this is in Esther 4.14, and who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. As we conclude our series on a theology of time, we need to acknowledge that we are where we are, we are when we are, for such a time as this. We are called, it is the heart of our calling, to redeem time. Paul wrote to the Colossians, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And here we find, as we've seen, the three aspects of the Christian life. How we live, our conduct, our ethics, that we are to walk in wisdom, that we are to redeem the time, and thirdly, what we say, our conversation. It's always to be full of grace. The issue, that the hinge, is the idea of redeeming the time. It's the pivot point. Um, I've quoted this before, but Jacques Ellul in his book, Presence in the Modern World, says, so we cannot avoid this idea of redeeming the time for the very reason that it is presented on the level of the Christian situation, not just a theological aspect, at the center of the Christian life as being the particular and decisive Christian function that encompasses all we have said to this point. In any case, these texts, and he uses Colossians 4 as well as Ephesians 5, show us that there can be no separation between preaching and behavior. We tend to focus on one or the other, but the reality is that the hinge point, the pivot point, is the notion of redeeming the time. There are some who focus more on behavior, and oftentimes can lead into a type of legalism. There are others who focus on uh, what you say, and so the the focus is much more on preaching and doctrine, Um, and both may, in fact, have lost sight of redeeming the time. How are we to recover what it means to redeem time? How are we to redeem time? I mentioned, again, at the end of the sermon last week, three principles which we will look at today. We are to walk before God, We are to read the signs of the times, and we are to serve God's purpose in our generation. Let's consider each one of these and what they involve. First of all, we are to walk before God. The verb walk appears in 1 John at least four times. One verse may be particularly familiar to you, 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we would admit it, walk is such a pedestrian word, pun intended. One might even say it is boring, putting one foot in front of the other. And to think of the Christian life as walking, putting one foot in front of the other, yeah, a lot of Christians just do not accept this. They would prefer impromptu acts of faith, some spontaneous reaction, some unplanned new direction in life. But I think this fails to recognize a basic truth, 
And that is that creative improvisation usually comes, you know, it's not just random impulsiveness, I think that's what we usually think of, but it is the result of a pattern of behavior. As people do things in a regular way, in a habitual way, then in fact you can have this creative improvisation. improvisation. If you consider the best of creative improvisation, jazz, or painting, thinking, singing, these are not simply random acts of fancy, but the fruit of genuine, a genuine mastery of the art. They are the results of countless hours of training, of practice, of discipline. What Malcolm Gladwell has popularized, the 10,000 hours of doing something. Improvisation and the freedom to imp improvise comes from this. So the natural and necessary foundation of life, of faith, is walking before God. The best test of what one, one says he or she believes is, in fact, how they live their lives. Think about this and consider this. If somebody claims to believe that there is a God, and you ask them, is there a God? What is the best way to know this God? Many, if not most, would try to answer with some type of philosophical argument, um, a progression of sort of syllogism to somehow prove to the person that God exists. This is, and I think, the result of Greek influence, which means that people tend to use philosophy to discuss God. But what we find in Scripture, what we find in the Old Testament among the Jews is that God is known through history, through his actions, rather than philosophy. And that faithfulness is central to the idea of faith. Faith in God is not the conclusion of a syllogism. It is not the last link that somehow connects a chain of logic. In the Old Testament, God is known by the stories of encounters, experiences in history. Israel knew God because he had delivered them out of slavery from Egypt. They saw and experienced his majesty at Sinai. He provided manna and more. Do you remember how the Ten Commandments begin? I think oftentimes people skip the first part and go to the first commandment. But how does it begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God does not present philosophical proofs that he exists. He simply says, this is who I am. I brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt. Israel knew him through his great acts in history, the ten plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, what they saw at Sinai. He provided water in the desert. He provided manna. And we are called, like Israel, to walk with God, to walk before God. Consider the story of Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Consider the early church in the book of Acts. The believers are known as people who belong to the way. Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, 
whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. These people are known as how they live. If you're in the way, you don't simply stand there. You're walking along the way. It was their walk. It was the stress on history, on story rather than philosophy, that is behind the vast difference between what Pascal, Blaise Pascal, described as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who is not the God of philosophers and scholars. In truth, a truth well-lived outweighs both a truth well-stated and a truth well-argued. If you state the truth well, that's, that's excellent, that's good. But if you live the truth, that is priceless. This is not to say that philosophy or argumentation has no place. It is crucial for establishing the sort of wisdom that we share as human beings, that we can talk and we have common ground and we can discuss various things. But the reality of God is better demonstrated in the story, the life, the work, the death and resurrection of Jesus than in a thousand arguments about the existence of God. The credibility of our faith shines out more clearly in a life of real faith than in the statement of mere beliefs or declaration of a creed. Words are important. I don't deny that. And truths about God may, in fact, be stated theologically and accurately. It is essential that our faith is clear. Loyalty to truth is all important. One central fact remains that the life of faith is a way of living in relationship with God and not simply a matter of stating the faith in a particular way. If you think about it, this is one reason why in the Old Testament, apostasy, turning from God, is seen as adultery. It's a violation of love and loyalty. It's not simply, oh, you've got bad doctrine. You're an apostate. You don't believe the right things. No. You, in fact, have violated love and loyalty. Walking before God is living as God intends us to live. It is the essential foundation without which making the most of life is impossible. A modern theologian, Stanley Harwas, has made a very blunt statement. He says that the postmodernism, the, the thinking that predominates now in our culture, is the result of the outworking of mistakes on, in Christian theology correlative to the attempt to make Christianity true apart from faithful witness. That is, for the past century, the church has tried to prove that the gospel is true rather than living it out. I suspect, well, I know, it is easier to make an argument than it is to live out the gospel. And as a result, there has been little evidence, there's not been the evidence that there should be, of the truth of the gospel in people's lives. So that's where we start. If we are to redeem the time, we are to walk as God intended. Secondly, we are to read the signs of the times. This calls for discernment on the time in which we live. Last Sunday, our text was 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. 
in the midst of a list of men who came to bring David up to Jerusalem because Saul was dead and they were bringing the kingdom to David. We read, men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, 200 chiefs all, with all their relatives under their command. Being able to read the signs of the time is not simply something that God's people have. I want to make that clear. In Esther chapter 1, we read in verse 13, uh, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. So this isn't simply a Christian thing. But how is it that we as God's people, as Christians, are to read the signs of the times? I think we should begin with the, we should take note of the fact that when it's mentioned in the Bible, it is not an individual who does this. It is the men of Issachar, 200 chiefs with all their relatives. In Esther, it is the wise men, not wise man. This is not an individual or a solo project or undertaking. We as God's people are to band together and to be discerning, to read the signs of the times. So, what are the signs of the times? What marks our culture or civilization? This is a series in and of itself. We're not going to do that. Um, But I'll limit myself to several things for us to consider. First of all, our culture has a distorted view of time. It is marked by a distorted view of time. We've discussed this earlier in the series, so I'll go over it briefly. First of all, there is a disregard for the past. What? C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Unless you want to use it as a weapon of hatred to bash somebody over the head, look at what you did in the past. Otherwise, there is a disregard for the past. There is a thinking that the past is lower and that we are slowly but surely making progress up to higher levels. Quoted this, I think, uh, maybe in the first sermon in the series from Edward Gibbon, who is famous for his work, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He wrote, It may be safely presumed that no people, unless the force of nature has changed, will relapse into their original barbarisms. We may therefore acquiesce in the pleasing conclusion that every age of the world has increased and still increases the real wealth, the happiness, the knowledge, and perhaps the virtue of the human race. Uh, People never go backwards. They're always going upward and and onward. He wrote this, the book, between 1776 and 1789. He died in 1794 during the reign of terror in France, which was considered the epitome of evil until the Holocaust in the 20th century. For many people, looking back is the same as looking down. That when you look to the past, you're looking at a lower level of things. As one philosopher put it, progress means more than history. Yeah, forget history. We need to look at the progress as we're going onward and upward. J.I. Packer describes this way of thinking as the newer is truer. Only what is recent is decent. Every shift of ground is a step forward and every latest word must be hailed as the last word on its subject. But this is a false way of looking at things. 
G.K. Chesterton wrote, real development is not leaving things behind as on a road, like you're making your way down a road and you look backward, no, I'm leaving that behind, but drawing life from them as from a root. It isn't simply that we've come down a road. We have grown from deep roots and we're growing up. We should not ignore the past. Our culture does. Also in our culture, we find an overemphasis on the present. The present is magnified at the expense of both the past as well as the future. We looked at this, what Os Guinness calls uh, generationalism, a way of thinking in terms of discrete generations, not biological generations, but in fact, different uh, periods of time in which people think in a particular way. And each of these is seen as quite discrete and having no connection with what came before it. So there's no sense of obligation. The emphasis on the, fut- on the present also disregards the future. Uh, what has the future ever done for me? It's not here, so it hasn't done anything for me. Fyodor Dostoevsky warned about this almost 150 years ago. Why should I love my neighbor or posterity, which I shall never see, which will know nothing about me, and which in turn will disappear without leaving any traces or memories. Why should I care about the people of the future? They don't know me, I don't know them, they haven't done anything for me, why should I love them? But we are called to love our neighbors. Our culture is also marked by a false view of the future because of the focus on progress. Progress by definition is good, better, best, it is unquestionably good. We're just going, getting better and better. We may have begun to question this more recently. But the opposite of progress is to be reactionary, to be old-fashioned, traditional. Well, it's just not good like progress. And progressive has become the magic word, which means you can't be Judge because you are in fact progressive. Again, to quote G.K. Chesterton, I mentioned this earlier in the series, progress is simply a comparative of which we have not settled the superlative. It's like we're getting better and better, but compared to what? It is the belief in our culture that human beings, in fact, are getting better and better and better. Let's ignore the past. It has nothing to do with us. Part of this, by the way, is a form of self-congratulation. I'm better than those who came before me. Look at how good I am. I'm not like them. In the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican who go to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee says, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. What modern people say is, we thank you that we're not like those people who came before us. And we know that in the future, we will be even better. One of the, the, the faults of this point of view is a blindness to human depravity. We imagine that people will only get better and better, and we fail to take into account the fact that we are fallen, that we are broken, that we are sinners. I find it surprising that in many representations of the future, they're dystopian, 
not utopian. It's not a bright future, it's a rather dark future. It seems to indicate that they don't have a brighter positive view of how things will be in the future. Or perhaps unconsciously they recognize the depravity of the human race. Or maybe darkness is just more interesting than light. Another thing that marks our culture is that there is no place for forgiveness. This is tied to a disregard for the past. As we've seen, the Israelites had plenty of reasons to hate the Egyptians. Four centuries of being enslaved, the cruelty that they had experienced at their hands, the oppression. And yet Moses tells them, do not abhor, do not hate an Egyptian because you lived as an alien in his country. And one might retort, yes, we were slaves in his country. Moses says, do not hate them. You are to forgive them. Jesus tells us, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, do good to those who hate you and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who persecute you. Having been freed, having been liberated by God from slavery and Egypt, his people were called to be a community of free people. And to be free, you have to be, you have to forgive. If you do not forgive someone, you carry that burden with you and you are not free. Justice must be pursued with the, an eye to the possibility of repentance, genuine repentance, and genuine forgiveness, as well as genuine reconciliation. The past is not gone, it's still with us. But forgiveness and repentance can take the poison, the darkness, the hatred out of it. In that sense, we redeem the past through the act of forgiveness. One might say, yeah, Damon, I'll do that when people start repenting. And indeed, repentance is important. But what if they don't repent? Does that mean we don't forgive them? We are called to forgive anyway. When we forgive, we are not saying, oh, it's no big thing. Don't worry about it. It's no problem. I've noticed that, by the way, that uh, today if someone apologizes, um, you never say, I forgive you. <laughs> what do you think I am, a criminal? What, the appropriate response is, well, don't worry about it. No biggie. No problem. No, we are to forgive. We're called to forgive. And when we forgive, we are not saying what you did was not wrong. We are not saying what you did was not evil. What we are saying is, I forgive you. We live in a time in which forgiveness is not, simply not an option for many people. They refuse to forgive those of the past. I mentioned last week John Newton, who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He used to be a slave trader before he was converted and became a minister in the Church of England. I'm not sure that John Newton would be forgiven if he were alive today. The past is now used to harass, to bludgeon, to isolate people, to ostracize them. There is no forgiveness. Hannah Arendt, in her book, The Human Condition, in writing about time and forgiveness, wrote that forgiveness is the only reaction 
which does not merely react, but acts anew and unexpectedly, unconditioned by the act which provoked it, and therefore freeing from its consequences both the one who forgives and the one who is forgiven. In other words, when someone does something wrong, the automatic reaction is not necessarily forgiveness. In fact, forgiveness, we might even say, is not a reaction. It is an act. And in forgiving, the one who did the evil thing and the one against whom this was done are both freed. You may recall the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, but if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The heart of the gospel is forgiveness, and it is something that our generation rejects. Another thing that marks our time is a new understanding of reason. When the modern age came in, and most of us were born into the modern age before postmodernism came on the scene, um, the Enlightenment, which began in the 1700s, um, profoundly, if not fundamentally, ch changed the way that people think. Um, and part of this was because of technology and the rapid development of it, a sense of time as progress. Um, and time, you know, as time went on, people began to think more and more that one can simply no longer believe. Must, one must reason. That faith, which is believing, is subjective and therefore kind of weak. And reason is objective. This is strong and this is the way we are supposed to go. And so since the time of the Enlightenment, in the 1700s, uh, there has been this battle between faith and reason. Faith is seen as belief, and reason is something of your mental abilities, your mental faculties, and this is objective, and faith is subjective, and therefore reason, for many people, has won the day. There's only one problem, and that is that people fail to take into account that reason is always shaped and fashioned by certain things. There is no such thing as pure or unadulterated reason. It's all conditioned by other things. Either intentionally or unintentionally, it has been shaped to justify our own desires. So our, our desires may include order and security, power and gain, love and belonging, but because of the way people think of time, the past is bad, it's lower, we're making progress. Reason now is seen as the way to go. And faith is seen as retrograde, reactionary, something that is to be done away with. When in fact, most people, if not all people, the way that they embrace reason is in fact an act of faith itself. You may remember that the Old Testament prophets, for them the key word was return. Let's go back. You need to return to the Lord. You need to go back and remember the things that he has done. Well, for our generation, that doesn't sound good. There were no good old days. There was no golden age, we are told. And we're not going back. The idea of returning is repulsive, I would say, to many people. But we need to understand that for us to go forward as a church, 
we must go back first. Repent was the first word that we hear in the message of Jesus. He announced that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need to return and repent. But we live in a time in which people reject this out of hand. So, we're to walk with the Lord. We are to discern what are the signs of our time. Thirdly, we are to serve God's purpose in our generation. The verse that tells us about the men of Issachar informs us that not only did they understand the times, they knew what Israel should do. Their knowledge wasn't knowledge for its own sake. Ooh, look at what we know. What they had come to know through their discernment was this is what Israel should do. This is how we should live our lives. These are the decisions we should make. In Acts 13, we have Paul's first recorded sermon in the book of Acts. He is in modern-day Turkey, a town called Antioch in the province of Pisidia. And this is not the main point of his sermon. He's getting to the resurrection. But he says, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. And in this, we find a specific task. He served God's purpose, a specific time in his own generation, and then a simple conclusion. He fell asleep. He did what God called him to do until it was his time to go, and then he went. This is our call as God's people. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But how is that to be done? It is to be done as we are faithful and obedient and we walk in the callings that God has given each of us. Time is a gift, we've seen this. We are responsible to use this gift wisely as stewards, as administrators. I think when I say the word steward or stewardship, most people think money, but God has given us time as a gift and we are to manage it well. But let's be clear about something. We are not omnipotent. We are not omniscient. And as a result, our understanding of the times, our actions, the decisions, the decisions we make, will not ever be perfect in this life. That is to say, as we seek to per, uh, perceive what our generation is about, we may in fact be wrong at certain points. And we may make decisions that, in fact, may be wrong. We're not perfect. We're not omniscient. Imperfect will always be written across our actions in our lives. If you wish, it should be put on our tombstones. Imperfect. Our actions, our lives, incomplete. Our best understanding of the times are bound to be flawed. And if our understandings are flawed, then in fact our actions will be incomplete. And the result of the decisions, our actions in this life will not be clear until we see God face to face. And hopefully by his grace we will hear, well done. That means that until then, all that we do is to be rooted and anchored in humility. Our days on earth may be short, and our best understanding may be faulty. 
Our noblest endeavors often incomplete, but we are still to choose life. We are still to seize the day. We are still to redeem time. We are still to seek to serve God in our time. Our text is from the book of Esther, a truly unusual book, primarily for what we don't find in this book. There is no mention of God in the book of Esther. I don't know if you knew that, but God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. There is no mention of prayer. Uh, We do read of fasting, um, but there's no prayer done that we are told of. Uh, Prayer is conspicuous by its absence. There's no prayer. There's no indication of praise. They do not praise God for this miraculous deliverance. There's no mention or quotation of any other part of scripture. And there is no evidence of a particularly godly people, including Mordecai the Jew, as he is known in this book. He does the unthinkable, encouraging his like his daughter, uh, his cousin, Esther, to marry a heathen king. Even though he must have known that God said, you you can't do this. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are about the same time as this. Um, Ezra before, but then Nehemiah. And they are quite, quite specific that Jews are not to marry Gentiles. Mordecai also commands Esther to hide rather than reveal that she is Jewish. That is, she's to hide her relationship with God for fear that the king might disapprove of her religion. In fact, had Esther revealed that she was Jewish, she would not have been a part of this contest. And what is the contest? Well, the queen Vashti that preceded her Um, The king was having a big feast for days and days, and he said, hey, bring my wife out, bring the queen out. And Vashti's like, I'm not doing that, I'm not coming out. So he was completely humiliated, she had disobeyed him. So they kick her out, and they decide to get a new queen. And how did they do this? They're going to have this contest to see who will be the new queen. Um, I don't care for beauty contests, but this wasn't a beauty contest. Yes, the women had to be beautiful, But there was more to it than that. It was, for lack of a better way to put it, a sex audition. For 12 months, these women are, in fact, to be beautified. They are to be perfumed. They are to be prepared for one night with the king. I remember as a child being told the story of Esther, and I guess the adults didn't want, well, we wouldn't understand, but um, they said that Esther was a wonderful conversationalist, and that's why the king wanted to marry her. Well, if you read the book of Esther, um, then before the woman goes into the king, she's in the house of the virgins, and after she's with the king, she goes into the harem. She's no longer a virgin. She has had to put on a sexual performance to please the king, and maybe she will become the next queen. There are no runner-ups in this contest. If you don't win, you go to the harem. Why would Esther ever agree to this? 
why would Mordecai, who was her guardian, ever let her participate in this? And yet he did, and she did. And God used Mordecai and Esther to save the Jewish people from annihilation. I'm not suggesting for a moment that we emulate Mordecai and Esther. But we are to recognize that for all our flaws, our deep flaws, we are broken vessels that God can use us as we serve him in our generation. I think for many of us, this is the hard part. We carry with us a sense that we are not worthy to be someone who serves God. And I would say if Mordecai and Esther could, we can as well. So what are we to take away from this series on theology of time? Let me suggest to you two things. First of all, we are to be long-term in our thinking. This means we need to understand the incremental nature of our actions. Change takes time. Growth takes time. Habits take time to develop. Transmitting the gospel from one generation to another takes time. And the final hope of freedom and justice achieved takes time as well. Little by little, inch by inch, day by day, moment by moment, God, in fact, may translate that into something beyond our expectations. We are not to be hasty in our assessment, premature in our conclusions like, oh, that, that was a total flop, that was a failure, that will not result in anything good. We are not omniscient, we don't know. See, part of the problem is we live in an instant society. Our thinking needs to be biblical. It needs to be long-term. So first of all, we are to be long-term in our thinking. This is quite contrary to the generation, the culture in which we live. Secondly, we are always to be reliant on God. We are his people. We seek to serve his purpose in our generation but we are always to be reliant on God for the final outcome. Consider that knowing God is not up to us, but we are to be grateful that he reveals himself to us. Salvation is not up to us, but we thank God that he rescued us and redeems us. And the end of history is not up to us, but we thank God for that day when Jesus will return. Humbly, we are to know that faith is not up to us. It is God's gift. We need to acknowledge that we are where we are, we are when we are, for such a time as this. We are called, it's the heart of our calling, to redeem the time. Let us walk with the Lord in our callings, the vocations he has given us. Let us be faithful to him in our obedience and then wait to see what the Lord will do. Let's pray together.
God of all grace, of all mercy, all-knowing and all-powerful, by your Spirit speak to our hearts. Help us to see what it is you have called us to do to redeem the time as your people, to walk with you, to be discerning about the culture in which we live, and then to serve your purpose in our generation. May we not look to or rely on our own abilities. They are gifts you have given us. But may we rely on you. May we not judge the effectiveness. May we not assess whether or not we've done a good job. The reality is you are the one who uses our efforts for your purposes. At times when we feel we are too small, too broken, may we remember the story of Mordecai and Esther, whose lives we certainly should not emulate, but we see that you used them and saved your people. You are the eternal God. You have given us time as a gift. May we recognize it as gift and use it well. Speak to our hearts by your spirit and give us understanding. I pray for each one in the coming week. This is the first day of a new week. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through this world. May we walk with you putting one foot in front of the other, trusting in you. And may our lives be the best proof, the best evidence that you, in fact, are there. You do exist. And you are a God of love and grace. May your spirit and your grace be with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.